Welcome to the Derek Diamond Experience Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope your 2019 is off to a fantastic start. With this being the first episode under the new format, I expect a lot of you are going to be listening for the first time. So I thought I'd start by telling you a little bit about myself. My name is Derek Diamond, as you probably guessed by the title of the show. I live in the Gulf Coast of Florida, specifically in Pensacola. I've been a lifelong resident here. I currently work for the Pensacola Blue Wahoos minor league baseball team as part of their creative services department. They are the AA affiliate of the Minnesota Twins, and I've been working for the Blue Wahoos for going on seven years. As far as podcasting goes, I've been podcasting overall for about the same time, seven years, and I've been doing this show specifically for just under five. And last summer, I felt like this show was at a crossroads. Due to the combination of a very busy baseball season and a lot of changes that happened in my personal life, I was burnt out, and it affected the quality of the show. I was not in a good headspace, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. Part of me had thought of just ditching the show and doing something different, but after thinking about it, I didn't want to entirely quit the Derek Diamond experience because, no pun intended, It's provided me with a lot of cool experiences by bringing me closer together with friends, as well as meeting and conversing with new people. And I will say as a side note, if I sound a little nasally, I apologize. I'm recovering from a sinus infection, so if my voice sounds a little out of the ordinary, that's why. But during that time frame, I went to Philadelphia to attend Podcast Movement, which is a four-day conference dealing specifically with podcasting. It has a combination of seminars, breakout sessions, and meet and greets. And it was a really cool experience because I had never really been around a ton of people who did podcasting. It was like I didn't really have to explain what a podcast was. It was like people already knew what I was talking about. And it was there that I got the inspiration to change up the format of my show. So for longtime listeners, the variety show aspect is no more. I'm going to be talking specifically with fellow creative people in the world of film and television. Now, I've interviewed actors and directors on the show before, but I also wanted to talk with editors, with cinematographers, producers, those who work in all aspects of the industry to get their story on why they wanted to pursue the career they did and how they got there. Because I don't want this to just be an entertaining show. I want it to be informative as well. Because it's also a learning experience for me because, you know, filmmaking is what I ultimately want to do and, you know, recently did my first short film, but I still want to pick everyone's brain on how I can get better at what I want to do. And hopefully if you're an aspiring filmmaker or if you want to work in TV, you get something out of it as well. And it was also at Podcast Movement that I met my guest for this week's show. Not only is he a podcaster, but he's also a documentary filmmaker. His name is Chris Parkhurst, and we talk about our initial meeting at Podcast Movement, how he got into the film industry, his current project, Elvis of Cambodia, which has a really fascinating story behind it. He also introduces me to some of the Cambodian culture, why he calls it his home away from home, his podcast, The Documentary Life, so much more he talks about his other documentary, Journey to Kathmandu, his company, Barong Films, the Documentary Academy, a ton of stuff. It was really great to reconnect with him, and hopefully you guys enjoy listening to this show. So without further ado, here is The Documentary Life with Chris Parkhurst. 
So I'm sitting here with documentary filmmaker and fellow podcaster, Mr. Chris Parkhurst, who I actually met uh, a few months ago at uh, Podcast Movement in Philadelphia. So, Chris, uh, it's good to talk with you again. Uh, how have you been since we met back over the summer? Yeah, that was. That was towards the mid the latter part of the summer, wasn't it? Was it late July when Podcast Movement was? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the, the last week of July. Yeah, yeah. And I loved it. Both my wife, Steph, and I were there. And it's the second year in a row that we've gone to Podcast Movement. And I really enjoy it. I love being in a place. Uh, it's not unlike really the podcast that we do. I love being in a place where there are like-minded individuals. You don't, in this case, when it comes to podcasts, it's nice to be around people that you don't have to explain what a podcast is and who it's for. <laughs> you can actually speak the language with, with other other people doing the, doing the podcast thing. So, um, yeah, and I was glad you came up to our table and introduced yourself. And uh, one of the things that I remembered about you, Derek, and <laughs> was that you had mentioned that you, you'd had a longtime football player, Jake Plummer, once on your show. Was that, wasn't that you that mm-hmm. told me that? Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. That was almost four years ago. That's insane to think about. <laughs> <laughs> excellent excellent well it's good to be on i'm happy to be on your show man no absolutely and you know kind of going back to what you were saying about not having to explain to people what a podcast is you would be surprised that people still don't know what that term means you know i if, yeah i'll be talking about it and someone will be like well, what's a podcast and first i'm thinking well the the term I mean, I know podcasts were around before podcasts became an actual term, but yeah. they've been around for so long that I'm thinking, you know, how do you not know what a podcast is? So I just say, well, it's basically a radio talk show on the internet. They're like, oh, okay, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a pretty easy way to define that. The The two things that really stood out to me as far as podcast movement went was it, it was, that was the first time I had really been around a lot of people who we're doing podcasts and some, you know, I, I met one guy uh, named Rob Hoshield who was only 10 episodes deep mm. into his show. So I'm like, okay, this has got to be almost like a brand new experience for you. And then there were some who have been podcasting for 10 plus years. So yeah, right, right. It was cool, you know, meeting people with that, you know, different variety of knowledge, different and range. Yeah. Part of me was thinking, you know, it, in a way, it would be exciting to start a brand new show, but at the same time, I don't know that I could invest that much time into it. Right. And Derek, was that inspired prior to going to the sh- to going to podcast movement, or is that something that you took out of it? As far as revamping my show? Yeah. So it was either night two or night three. I was hanging out at the hotel bar, and I met this guy uh, who did a sports show based out of Manchester. So we're talking and, you know, he, I told him that I work in minor league baseball. So he was asking me about that. Oh, that's right, Derek. <laughs> you and I talked about baseball for a little bit. That's right. Okay. Could please continue? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So basically I explained to him, you know, that my show was getting kind of stagnant and I wasn't really happy with how the numbers were doing. And he said, well, yeah. are you wanting to do podcasting as a hobby or do you want to do more with it? Because, with you saying that you're not happy with the numbers means that you want it to be successful to some extent. And I said, well, sure, you know, anything that I'm involved with, I want to be successful. Right. So he said, well, what do you want to do if you don't want to be a professional podcaster? And I said, well, I want to make movies. So he said, make your podcast uh, about filmmaking. Yeah, right, right. So 
And it was as simple as that. And then I thought about it and thought, well, it, it is the the venture that I want to go down. So, you know, why not use my show as an outlet to talk about that? And not just, you know, with film, but with documentaries as well, which why you were, you know, one of the first people I thought of. Because in addition to doing documentaries, you also do a podcast. So I thought it would be the perfect fit. Absolutely. And I'm happy to be here. That's great that you had that, uh, that epiphany and that, and that certainly that conversation. And uh, I assume when you say Manchester, you're referring to the UK. That is correct. Excellent. Yeah, I just got back from the UK a few days ago. I, I was there for five weeks. That's really where we currently are based out of. It's where my wife and two children live. And uh, I'm actually back in the States doing a bunch of uh, a bunch of commercial work. But um, but that's really where we're based out of up north and well, somewhat north in the Midlands and, and Birmingham in the UK. What's it like living there as opposed to living in the States? Well, they drive on the other side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the fish and chips are better. I don't <laughs> People are more polite. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Steph's, Steph's British, and uh, so I've been around British culture. And well, at least since we've been married, and we've only been married for about five years now. But uh, I'll tell you one thing. It's a trip to... You know, it's a trip to go back to, to the UK and and Steph and the kids have been that there now for about two months time. And I just like I said, I went out there, you know, f- five weeks ago and uh, it is a trip having your two year old and four year old speaking with full on uh, brummy accents now. And, uh, you know, I was not accustomed to that. So that took me a little bit by surprise, a little bit of a shocker there. But um, but it's OK. <laughs> <laughs> No, that that's wild, but that that's actually really cool. I, I I love the various accents from around the world, whether it's you know in the UK and Australia, just different yeah, dialects. Sure. That they everybody sounds so much smarter than Americans. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> they do, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> they really so, do. So, kind of backtracking a little bit, where are you from originally? Where did you grow up? I'm originally from the Rochester, New York, Buffalo, New York area in New York State. Um, I lived there. Well, I grew, I grew up there and, uh, at about age, I don't know, age 20, I, I moved and, and never really came back. Although we did live here, um, a year ago, we, uh, when I say we, uh, my wife and kids, we lived, we came back to Western New York for, for about a year. So, um, but it had been 25 plus years since I'd lived here. So I grew up here in Western New York, or I grew up in Western New York, I should say, and then, and then moved out to the West coast and lived off and on in Portland, Oregon for a good 25 plus years. And that's really where I started working in the film industry. Now, did you have Portland in mind when you, is that why you moved to Portland was to get I don't know. I mean, I didn't know a ton about Portland. I, I sort of romanticized, I think the Pacific Northwest, but I think initially I had intended maybe to be surprise, surprise in a place like LA. Now, uh, to make a long story short, I had been teaching uh, English. It's one of my first jobs out of college. I was teaching English over in, in South Korea. And I met a, a girlfriend at the time over there, and she was from Oregon. And so uh, we ended up moving out to the West Coast together when our, when our, when our uh, English teaching contracts were over in Korea. And that's how I ended up out in the West Coast. Now, I wanted to get into film pretty early on, um, 
and I, so I thought, I thought I'd be in LA, but uh, it just never really happened that way. We ended up in Portland, Oregon. Um, it actually was quite a while before I got into the film industry, quite a few years, but I just, I really loved the vibe in Portland and, uh, I've always been hard pressed to find a place quite like Portland in the U S for sure. But, um, but ultimately I did end up starting to work, uh, in film and TV based out of Portland, Oregon. And how did you get into the film and TV industry? Oh man, that's uh, that's an interesting question. I, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I was the starving artist for well into my late twenties and, 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 and early thirties and uh was dabbling in film for a long time but it was always you know my own creation so i owned a video camera and i would get together with with other friends and we would make short films and i think back then i always well i know back then i always wanted to get into narrative film i think i, I fancied myself sort of the um the wannabe lars von trier i was way into the 90s style of of um dogma films if you're familiar with any of those guys i'm sure you've heard mm -hmm. of lars von trier but i i really was into the indie film thing but i couldn't ever i couldn't ever find my way into that first job and i took one job after another um you know cut sort of like one dead end job after another and ultimately i think the last job i worked before i finally found my way into the industry uh, I was, if you can believe this, I was supervising a valet staff at a well-known hotel chain in uh, in Portland, Oregon. And uh, lo and behold, one day I came home from work and, you know, miserable from my job. And, uh, and my, I guess, landlord slash roommate um, was a, was a filmmaker and he had received a Fulbright scholarship to go do a documentary film in the country of Cambodia. And he explained to me that his sound person had kind of, who had committed to the project, he had fallen through and, and had other commitments, I guess he ended up doing in LA. And, and this gentleman asked me if I, uh, if I'd be interested in maybe uh, leaving my, leaving my hotel job for a while and, and going to dodge landmines and unexploded ordnance in the country of Cambodia for six months and working on his doc film with him. And uh, I took, you know, all of about two minutes before I could uh, contain myself from blurting out, are you kidding me, man? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Why are we not on the plane now? Yes, exactly. It really was that kind of a feeling, Derek. And I mean, it was within, I think, you know, three weeks from that conversation that we were on a plane and headed to, you know, a country that at that point I knew absolutely nothing about, but has long since become a very dear place to my heart. And uh, I have since done a lot of commercial and documentary work in that part of the world. So are you referring to the documentary Elvis of Cambodia? Elvis from Cambodia is our current doc project. We've been working on that film for about four years now. And in fact, uh, I'm slated to return. Um, I'm not sure when you air this episode, but Jan at the, towards the end of January of 2019, I will be going back to Cambodia and uh, finishing out some additional filming and uh, we'll be doing post-production there as well. So um I'm quickly scrambling to try to put things together in place. Both Steph and I, and Steph, my wife, is the producer on the film. We're trying to get some uh, some last minute things in order before uh, before I do head out there. But very much looking forward to it. It's now been, 
you know, there was a time in the past decade of my life where rarely would a year go by where I didn't do some sort of work or travel, in particular in the country of Cambodia. Um, I've done a lot of work throughout Southeast Asia, including Nepal and Indonesia and Thailand and and up north in Asia and in China. But Cambodia, for for one reason or, or another, has always been a real um, it, it's pulled on the heartstrings. And I've got you know I have some good friends there, and I often uh, would end up back there every year. But now, for the first time since I had been going to Cambodia, it's now been. Well, Derek, I guess we've been working on the film for four years. It's been almost four years since I was last in Cambodia. So I'm very eager to get back and for one, to, to see my friends in the country and two, to finally get this film finished and, uh, and posted. That's always been kind of the allure to me of, you know, because when I, when I think of documentaries, I think of when I was a kid watching National Geographic and Discovery Channel with my grandpa and seeing all these cool places and just I remember the visuals from those and especially even documentaries now the visuals are just incredible it's yeah technology's come a long way in a very short amount of time at this point you know I'll just be and I think you know Netflix is has been a great tool for mm -hmm. you know, documentary filmmakers to air their content and I'll, I'll see some of this footage and next thing I know I'm mopping up the drool off my floor just because of how great that it looks yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. There's, there's, there is a lot of that out there. I mean, in the past 10 years alone, and I would even say 15 years, documentary film has come so far. It really has. I mean, the fact that, you know, it wasn't even 15 years ago that, that it was, documentary was not in the mainstream, Derek, and you couldn't go to a theater and see that many documentary films. And now they're all over the place. It's such a, uh, it's such a popular form of storytelling now when it comes to film. And it's exciting to see how far, how far doc film has come. Yeah, for sure. No, absolutely. And uh, it's across all avenues too. You know, you see nature documentaries, you see um, ESPN does their 30 for 30 series, which are really well done telling different stories that have happened in the sports world throughout the years. So yeah, you bet. It, it's, it's really, really cool. But going back to Elvis of Cambodia, what is the topic about and what inspired you to tell that story? Well, uh, there's a singer by the name of, uh, Sinsi Samut and Sinsi Samut, uh, was the most, at the time, the most popular singer probably in Southeast Asia. And this is in the late 60s, early 70s. And and Sinsi Samut at this point was is so popular a name for Cambodians, and this is Cambodian refugees worldwide as well, that literally, Derek, literally, and I would say any person that is listening to this, to this episode, I, I, I would... I would put my life on the fact that you would not be able to meet a Cambodian, probably regardless of age, who doesn't know who Sun Sisamut is. He was only second in popularity to to the king himself, King Sihanouk. Now, <clears throat> um, at the risk of um, uh, perhaps uh, listeners not knowing much about Cambodian history, and I didn't until the first time I went there. In the 70s, there was a, a genocide that occurred where nearly 2 million people, which was a third of the population of Cambodia, of Cambodia was wiped out by the Khmer Rouge regime. And uh, in that first year of the regime, 
um, in terms of the types of people that were killed, intellectuals, artists, singers, writers, doctors, anyone with Western ties were summarily executed. And at the top of their list was somebody like the singer Sinsi Samut because he was so immensely, uh, so immensely popular um, to Cambodians. And so he was executed during the first year of the regime. And our film is very much an exploration of how his, how his popularity not only how how not only were the Khmer Rouge not not successful in their attempt to really silence his voice, but in fact um, they created something else. And he he today is maybe more popular than he has ever been. Um, his words resonate with a, with generations now of Cambodians worldwide, both in Cambodia and refugees who had to leave Cambodia. And our film is very much an exploration of a handful of individuals who lives, whose lives are very greatly inspired um, by the music and lyrics of Sinsi Samut. And, um, and we explore, you know, how they're inspired by Sinsi Samut. Yeah, it does make me think of Elvis. A little bit. With yeah, that's him right. Being, well, in know, terms of popularity, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's I, I, I know a little bit about the um, the Cambodian genocide, but not anywhere near to the extent that that you explained it. So yeah, I'll right. have to have to do more research. Well, it's funny because even to to Western audiences, it's been really interesting to see the past ten years or so how some of that Cambodian psychedelic rock and roll from the '60s has made its way into um, into some Western films and music circles. And if you look up Cambodian rock and roll, like if you were to Google Cambodian rock and roll, there's some great stuff that's out there. It's, it's super cool. And uh, I love the music. It's, it's really, really good stuff. And um, I highly recommend it to anybody who's into music. There's, um, there's definitely a subculture of people um, that, that, that followed that music. In fact, there's a great band out of um, Los Angeles, out of LA called Dengue Fever. And Dengue Fever has been around for about 10 years. And they have sort of brought a modern interpretation to that Cambodian rock and roll. And they've kind of really made a name for themselves in India uh, in indie rock circles. So it's kind of nice to see that Cambodian rock has found its way over, over here in that way. I'll have to go on YouTube and search Cambodian rock and roll and listen to it while yeah, I dinner sure. right after this oh, podcast. Yeah. Lots of good stuff. Oh yeah. Um, so backtracking a little bit, um, I was reading on your your website that your um, first documentary produced by your company Bereng Films was called, and I'm, hopefully I pronounced this name correctly, Journey to Kathmandu. Right, right. And the, the, our company is Barong Films. It look, totally looks like Barang, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, but Barong actually happens to be, and it's more an inside sort of insider's joke than anything else. Barong is actually what, what Cambodians call uh, white people or foreigners. <laughs> so you could be walking down the street and they might yell, ooh, Barong, Barong. <laughs> <laughs> so we just sort of had a play on that. So it's like foreign films, right? So Barong Films is our company. The first film that was truly my own that I um, ideated and then directed and edited and produced was a film called Journey to Kathmandu. And it's a film that um, it's a film that I did and shot in the in the Himalayan mountains in, in Nepal. And it's essentially about uh, goats and goat herders 
who sort of um, make this, well, the goats make an annual trek every year from the border, borderlands with Tibet. And they come down and they make their sort of once in a lifetime trek from the border of Tibet all the way down through the mountains, ultimately into, into Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal. And it's at the height of the Dasai festival. And at the height of this particular huge annual festival, they have animal sacrifice to the goddess Durga. And it's predominantly thousands of goats throughout the country that are sacrificed, they're killed, and then they're consumed um, in the, on the one particular holy day of this festival. And so we sort of followed their once-in-a-lifetime sort of journey that they make ultimately to their sacrificial deaths in, in Kathmandu and Nepal. So how did you hear about this and what made <laughs> yeah. you want to tell that story? I, you know, I I had been in Nepal about a year or two prior before before doing the film, and I was trekking. I was on a 15-day trek, and if anybody's done any sort of long treks through mountains like this, you know, you spend hours and hours with yourself, and you're walking, and you have all kinds of meditative sort of thoughts. And, and interestingly enough, it just so happened to be that it was during the time just prior to the festival, and I didn't know this, of course, but just prior to the festival, um, we, we kept running into herds of goats like every couple of hours. And, you know, we'd run into these goats at like 10,000 feet elevation on a trail that was like, you know, five feet or six feet wide. And on one side is like a 5,000 foot drop off of a cliff. And so, you know, we would find ourselves occasionally running into herds of goats. And these herds of goats are like 100, 200 goats. And they're having to sort of, you're having to navigate this mountain trail with these, you know, amounts, you know, herds of goats. And at one point, and it was just fascinating seeing this. And I, and I asked our, our trekking guide, you know, why we kept running into these herds of goats. And he just sort of matter of factly said, oh, they're going, they're going in the same direction as you. They're going in, into Kathmandu. And I said, oh, well, what are they doing there? And he said, well, they're going to die. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? Tell me more. And, uh, and then he just told me, you know, he just told me about the, um, the annual festival and then the sacrificial nature and sort of the spiritual nature of the sacrifice and uh, and I guess I was really kind of taken by the story at that point. And uh, yeah, I just love the nonchalantness. Oh, they're just going to die. No, no big deal. Yeah, so so did I, man. I, I That's was just wild. Really kind of taken by that moment. And uh, and uh, but you know, it's it's all a part of culture for him. That's something that's happening all the, or every year, you know. And he was like, yeah, they're they're going to die. You know, life and death. <laughs> it's one of those things. Well, and and that is actually a perfect segue into the the next point I wanted to make when it comes to you know, I've never personally worked on a documentary but just from the observations that I've made it's it's interesting comparing documentaries to traditional films because with you know like the the film I've been working on you write the story you cast your characters you find your crew but with a documentary you are telling a story but also in a very different way because you're telling a real life story. So you're having to compile information, find people who are related to the incident. Um, so what, what is that process like, you know, now that you've done multiple documentaries, what's the process like with, you know, one finding 
what you want to to talk about in your film and then and then from there is it you know collecting information and then finding people who can talk about that event yeah i think it, yeah yeah i would say yes that's that's those are all components to it and you know i would say derek there are so nowadays it feels like there are so many different ways to be a storyteller in, in doc film and in particular, I mean, it's getting to the point now where you can watch doc films and sometimes they look as close. They they might resemble very closely narrative feature films now. And so you have a decision to make early on as a doc filmmaker in the way that you want to tell your story. Do you want to tell it? So it's, uh, looks resembles more uh, has a look more of a look and feel to a narrative feature film. Do you want to tell it instead in a verite sort of form? Do you want to see what it's like, sort of the everyday or day in the life uh, examination of a subject or a person? There's again, there's many different ways to sort of tell that story, but nonetheless, I think as a doc filmmaker, and I and I and I tell people this all the time on the podcast. We stress this is that one of the things that's unique to being a doc filmmaking storyteller, if you will, is that nine times out of 10, you go into your doc filmmaking experience with a very specific idea that you want to tackle. And and nine times out of 10, what you end up with at the end of that journey resembles almost very little of what you thought you were going to be telling. And that's the nature of doc filmmaking. You have a story that you set out to tell, but then you have to gather the information. You have to get the people together that are going to be able to speak to that subject. And you have to be willing to be able to bend and compromise at times to be able to let the story tell itself. And I think that that's a really important element to to being a doc filmmaker is knowing that, yes, you want to have an idea of what your story could be about. But then the beauty and nature of doc filmmaking is that story is going to tell itself. And you need to be able to kind of go along with that ride and kind of nurture it as it goes along and, and, and stay true to what you want in terms of the type of film you want to tell. But be aware that that film is going to tell itself. And if you don't recognize that, you might miss telling something truly beautiful and great. No, I, I like that. And it, even the same goes with you know, narrative film as well. You know, I use an example for um, my friend Steve who uh, directed a short film called Servi. Um, I guess when this airs will be now two years ago. Mm. When he originally wrote the story, it was two people, the entire f- short film was one scene with two people in a room talking. Oh, wow. What we shot was a pre- or post-apocalyptic suspense-type film. So it was that took place completely outdoors. So it just completely evolved into something different. And I, I can imagine, you know, as you discover more about the subject that you're wanting to tell, yeah, you, you know, it, it it probably tweaks things as well as far as the narrative that you're telling. Well, I, and I just finished watching make the Netflix series Making of a Murderer. I just finished watching that second season. And one of the things that struck me early on was, and I don't know if you've seen the seen the show, but I have not. It's it, it's an incredible, incredible docu series. It's 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 highly I uh, highly recommend it. It's called Making of a Murderer, and in the second season, and basically it's about 
the filmmakers are are positing that these two people have been wrongfully um, imprisoned for a murder that they didn't commit. And in the second season, um, they bring on a a um, a legal expert who's going to a legal expert who is going to try to reverse the decisions that were made that put uh, one particular person in one of the particular characters in, in prison. And as you're watching it, as a doc filmmaker, as I'm watching it, I realized pretty early on that the, the filmmakers had a decision to make early on because this woman who was uh, this legal expert clearly has a ton of charisma. She's fascinating to watch. The things that she says are incredibly interesting and I can see that the filmmakers had a decision to make early on. Okay, well, I think that she needs to be the person to tell that story. And I bring that up because there's no way the filmmakers could have known about this woman, Kathleen, until the second season happened and until they started filming. So they couldn't have known that they were going to tell this particular story through um, very largely through her voice. And that happens because they met her and she was a part of the story and they sat down and talked with her and they filmed with her. And from that, they realized, I'm sure, pretty quickly, oh, wow, we have an incredible character for the screen. We need to tell the story through her. That just happened almost out of pure circumstance. I mean, that's my guess. That's my guess. Yeah, that, that's that's what it sounds like. And, you know, that goes to your point of you have to be flexible with what the best way to tell your story is because and it's you know I've I've even been learning this too is that if you're so tunnel visioned with what you want you could miss Mm. out on something that could be truly great yeah yeah I mean that's definitely it's definitely a key element um one of the elements that we that we talk about as a uh, on the documentary live podcast that was actually a very perfect segue uh, so, so what was it that inspired, you know, we were talking about podcast movement yeah. at the top of the show. What was it that inspired you to do your podcast, the documentary life and congratulations on hitting a hundred episodes, by the way. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not sure that we ever envisioned that happening, but nonetheless, here we are. So I, I appreciate that. You know, Derek, the documentary life um, began about two and a half years ago, a hundred episodes ago, if you will. And it initially, I think initially I had set out to write a blog, but it pretty quickly became a podcast. And uh, the documentary life is, as we like to say at the outset of the show, um, we like to inspire and inform people on how to best live and lead this idea of a documentary life. And I think the podcast came about because, so I've been working for years in commercial and commercial, uh, the commercial industry is where commercial film industry is where I predominantly was really my bread and butter. And that allowed me to um, proceed sort of and live my passions of doc filmmaking. And so even today, a big chunk of a big chunk of my living still comes from doing the commercial work. It enables me to do the documentary work though. Now, uh, you know, in the past year or two, the pendulum has thankfully been swinging sort of in the other way, very much intentionally because we really want to be able to make our entire livings doing the doc film work. 
But one of the things that we've, I, I discovered was if you work in the commercial or the feature film industry, and, and actually that's where I met my wife, uh, Steph, Stephanie, she works in the, or she had worked in the feature film industry. And one of the things that you learn pretty early on is that in order for you to keep getting the job, getting work or get the next job, you have to not only be good at your job and be willing to work your butt off, but you need to know the people that are doing the hiring. And so what happens in commercial and feature films is you kind of naturally, um, due to you know wanting to, to get more work, you start to learn who the producers are. You start to learn who the production coordinators are. You learn the people uh, that are in the industry that do the hiring. And so it's just sort of a natural way to stay connected within and networked within that industry. Now, unfortunately, what we have found in the doc filmmaking community is somewhat the opposite is true. There is a lack of networking. There's a lack of community. There's a lack of resources. And doc filmmakers, by nature, tend to be fairly solitary people. Um, we tend to do the projects on our own. We have, we may have a team of people who help us with our projects, but we're not that necessarily connected with other doc filmmakers. And the irony there is, is oftentimes we doc filmmakers are the ones that are the most lacking in, in money and resources. And so I really think that Derek, I set out to do the Derek, the, the documentary life podcast as a way to not only connect myself with the doc filmmaking world, but hopefully I want to be able to connect um, sort of the global world of doc filmmakers who I suspected were out there. Um, I wanted to be able to get us all together and network us and, 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 and sort of build this community of, of doc filmmakers who could share ideas and share those uh, resources that we were lacking. And, and I think that's why I initially started the podcast. It sounds to me like that was, you know, the perfect, the perfect reason to do it because, you know, you had, you've had a ton of great guests on um, that have told really interesting stories. I, mm. I can't remember the two gentlemen's names off the top of my head, but it was one that you, you <laughs> told me about at Podcast Movement. They did a documentary called The Battered Bastards of Baseball. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, not only did they do the Battered Bastards of Baseball, but they did a, a Netflix documentary series called Wild Wild Country, which mm -hmm. I'm sure many of your listeners have watched. Um, it was a massive docuseries last year that has won all kinds of awards. And it's it's Mac and Chap. It's McLean and Chapman Way um, are the filmmakers. And uh, both of those films, well, one's a, one's a documentary feature, The Battered Bastards of Baseball. And then Wild Wild Country is a docuseries that they did through, uh, through, through Netflix. And, yeah, we had Mac and Chapman way on, on, on the show. I forget what episode number it was, but um, they were a great conversation. Loved having those guys on. We've had on uh, Steve James, who is sort of one of the sort of bigger doc filmmakers, bigger doc filmmaking names you could you could really have on the program. Of course, his his first documentary that he ever did. Um, Hoop Dreams is is one that has inspired many a doc filmmaker. Um, we've had on uh, we recently had on Maureen Gosling, who was in uh, who did who worked with Werner Herzog and, and Les Blank. We had on Bing Liu, whose film Minding the Gap um, is actually his first film, and it came out this past year, and that's won all kinds of awards. So yeah, we've had we've had a number of different 
Um, we've had a number of different types of guests on the program, and we've talked about a number of different topics. And you know, what I'm particularly proud of, Derek, is the, half the time the conversation, of course, are the how-to aspects of doc filmmaking. But the fact of the matter is, and I, and I know that you know this as a filmmaker yourself, if you want to know something about a piece of gear or you want to know how to shoot something or how to ed edit something, you can pretty much Google it or search for it on YouTube at this point and, uh, and find out the information that you need to know pretty quickly. And so that information is pretty readily available. And what's not so readily available, and, I, and I'm particularly proud of this, is the other half of the, of the greater conversation that we're having in the documentary life, which deals with sort of the lifestyle aspects of, of what it means to be an independent documentary filmmaker. And so we talk about things like how do you stay healthy <laughs> as a as an independent doc filmmaker? Um, what are other revenue streams as an independent contractor? Um, what does it mean to have a family and be working in, in a developing country like Nepal or Cambodia? And so I really enjoy, and I, and I know that our listeners do as well, this other part of the conversation. So I think it's a nice, healthy mix of the how-to aspects of doc filmmaking um, coupled with the, the lifestyle aspects of being a doc filmmaker. Well, and in addition to that, what I, I enjoy about your show is that it's very informative, but it's told in a very casual way. You know, I, mm. I, I love the podcast that it's almost like you're just sitting in a room listening to it could be two people or a group of people just having a yeah. conversation. Like I, I, I've never been a huge fan <laughs> of what I call the cheesy morning radio interviews where it's yeah. you know, the guest <laughs> is on for maybe three to four minutes and you really don't learn anything about them other than what they have coming up. Yeah. So it's, dreadful, it, it's, isn't it? it's cool, you know, hearing, you know, these filmmakers stories and their experiences and advice that they give, you know, for those who are aspiring to do that as well. So I, yeah. I, I really, I've, you know, subscribed to the podcast since you and I met and I've very much oh, nice. enjoyed it. Thanks. I, I appreciate those those kind words, man. That that means a lot. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've, you know, we've received emails from guests or at the end of my conversation with guests where and these are well-known people in the doc filmmaking community who have thanked me for having the conversation. And that, that means the world to me. And, you know, and they're thanking me for exactly what you're talking about. They're thanking me for not having a one minute or three minute conversation with sound bites, you know, that's maybe about promoting their next piece of work or, or a current project. It's a, it's a much more complex and involved conversation about doc filmmaking and they know that that conversation is going directly to doc filmmakers. And I think they really appreciate that. Well, speaking of promoting, that's actually my next question. Um, <laughs> what's next for you? What's next for yeah. uh, Barong Films? What's next for the documentary life? Yeah, well, um, sort of as an extension of, of sort of the ideals, if you will, of the documentary life, um, Steph and I have uh, just recently released... Um, the Documentary Academy. And the Documentary Academy is a set of online doc filmmaking courses that really essentially take you all the way from ideation and your film foundations, and it takes you through uh, 
funding your film and then making the film and then we go through distribution with you and it's a it's a great online set of online courses full of really it's run by video tutorials that we have created we've taken nine months to really create this academy and it's all based on our direct documentary experience coupled with even in many ways the two and a half years of of doing the podcast having guests on and directly interacting with listeners of the program and other doc filmmakers and really discovering what their biggest pain points and what their needs are as doc filmmakers and so we wanted to create a platform we wanted to create a place for um, in particular, first-time filmmakers to come to where they can come to and, and essentially we can help build them an, uh, an idea. We can help them step-by-step step through a grant proposal. Um, we teach them what it means to write grant proposals. Um, we help them come up with a film distribution strategy. We take them through the various different modes of, of, of funding, really, raising funds for your film. We know that that's obviously a big pain point for doc filmmakers. And then we, we, we talk about the best practices of getting one's film, film out there, getting that film seen after they've spent all this time making it. And so that's been, you know, something that we're really proud to finally, to finally release. In fact, um, we're currently in winter and uh, currently in in the winter segment of the Documentary Academy. Um, we open enrollment up again around March. We're opening it up again in the spring. So if anybody is interested, if anybody out there is a doc filmmaker or interested in making a doc film, um, I certainly can highly recommend checking out the Documentary Academy. And you can just do that by going to the doc, uh, www.thedocumentaryacademy.com. And that'll take you to the website. And, you know, I've put together, um, we put together a nice video that not only tells you the things and explains the things that you would get by enrolling in the Academy, but it gives you a direct look into what the Academy looks like, how the video tutorials work, how the action worksheets work and um, and how the whole academy works alongside your own project. And so that video, um, the video is on the landing page for the academy. So, um, yeah, excited, to, excited that we have the documentary academy and the documentary life now. So it's been uh, it's good stuff. And and now we'll be looking forward to um, getting to Cambodia to, to finish out our, our most current project. Fantastic. Uh, do you have any other website or social media you'd like to plug so the listeners can follow you? Well, of course, the podcast website is thedocumentarylife.com, and I tend to use Twitter quite a bit. So if anybody out there is, is a Twitter follower, you can go to at mydoclife, and, um, and, uh, and then you can find us on Facebook at The Documentary Life. And one thing I'll mention about that is – we also do have a um, a private uh, a private community Facebook group. So if you were to search the Documentary Life Community uh, Facebook group, it's a wonder. Unlike I think a lot of Facebook groups that are out there, this is one that's particularly active uh, with other doc filmmakers. It's a super active, engaged, supportive community. And um, I'm happy that that's out there. And I know a lot of doc filmmakers take advantage of that. It's free. You can find it. In fact, if you if you went to the documentarylife.com, I'm sure you could find the link there to the community. Um, otherwise, you could go to Facebook and kind of search for the Documentary Life Community Facebook group. Um, but other than that, um, 
yeah, uh, uh, I want to I want to applaud you, Derek, for this show. Thank you very much for having me on it. But I also want to applaud you for for after having been through podcast movement, recognizing in yourself that that you weren't maybe entirely happy with where you were at with your particular podcast and that you wanted to pivot with it a little bit. And I think what you're what you're doing sounds pretty exciting to me. And and I'm actually uh, I'll be really happy to hear how the podcast does how how the podcast does how these changes affect your approach to the podcast as well as how it affects your audience. I think it's pretty exciting what you're doing. And uh, of course, I love that you're dealing directly with filmmaking. That's super exciting for for somebody like me, man. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I've, as we're recording this, I've done, I think, four or five other interviews, and they, they've all been really, really good from talking with, you know, directors, producers, actors, getting to pick their brain and everything. Yeah. It, it's been, it's been really cool, and I'm, I'm excited for, for everybody to hear it. But, um, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. It was great catching up with you, and hopefully we can stay in touch. Absolutely. It's truly an honor, Derek. I really appreciate you having me on the program. Thanks again to Chris. Good luck to him as he travels back to Cambodia to finish his documentary, Elvis of Cambodia. Be sure to follow him on Twitter at MyDocLife and at The Documentary Life on Facebook. Next week, I'll be chatting with not one, but two guests. One who will be making her first appearance on the show in four years. Writer-director Jennifer Nicole Stang's short film, The Whistler, has been screened at quite a few film festivals, so she, along with her producer, Sasha Filipovich, will be on the show to talk about the making of their short film, The Whistler. And in closing, I just want to say thanks, as always, to my good friends, the Unicorn Wranglers, for providing the theme music for this show. Their songs Late Night drive Through" and Light and Jazzy are off their latest album, Greetings from the Space Van, which you can find on Apple Music, Spotify, and Google Play. And if you want to follow the show on social media, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at D Diamond Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the new format. I'm really excited in the direction that this podcast is going to go. And we'll see you guys next week with Jenny Stang and Sasha Filipovich.